Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Kenya is inching towards a referendum on a new constitution. Doesn't matter to the Kenyan public. And Zambian President Lungu is preparing for a third term. Why is Zambia's democracy taking a nosedive? Plus, we discuss populism in Africa. What does it mean and what might the future hold? This is our second podcast episode live, or at least in this case, via Zoom, in front of an audience at the University of San Francisco. So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. Kenya is moving closer to a referendum on the Building Bridges Initiatives, also known as BBI. Is this about power sharing between elites or delivering better governance to the Kenyan public? Joining me to discuss Kenya and other topics are Kathleen Klaus, Assistant Professor at the University of San Francisco, Chipanda Chimbelu, a reporter at Deutsche Welle, and Danielle Resnick, Senior Research Fellow and Team Leader for Governance at the International Food Policy Research Institute. This is a very special episode of Into Africa. It is our second live episode in front of a class at the University of San Francisco. If you're interested in hosting a live episode, you can email us at africa at csis.org. In late February, enough of Kenya's 47 county assemblies approved the Constitution of Kenya Amendment Bill 2020, which means it's going to go to the national parliament and then to referendum. To the Building Bridges Initiative, whose secretariat has lined up a series of activities to popularize a constitutional amendment bill 2020 after 41 county assemblies approved it. The secretariat has crafted 10 teams that will spearhead the BBI campaigns countrywide, buoyed by the verdict in county assemblies. Now, President Huru Kenyatta and ODM leader Raila Odinga have hailed the county assemblies for voting in the bill's favor. There's a lot in this bill which was really the outcome of the Building Bridges Initiative, BBI. It includes the establishment of a prime minister, two deputies, as well as amendments to the Bill of Rights, strengthening anti-corruption mechanisms and revenue sharing between the counties. The key question, and this is what we asked Ken Apollo in an episode last year, is will these reforms really change Kenya's political culture and will it deliver real dividends to its citizens? Kathleen, your book, Political Violence in Kenya, Land, Elections and Claimmaking, and your research agenda looks at these issues of politics, grievances, popular mobilization. So what do you make of BBI? How should we think about its strengths and weaknesses? So yes, this is a really important question. And just in case not all the listeners out there have been following this BBI issue, and to summarize, right, I see that this BBI seeks to move away from a winners-take-all style of politics towards a more consociational model. It establishes a role for the, a prime minister and deputy prime ministers, enlarging the executive, and it expands the number of constituencies from 290 to 360. There's many other really important issues in the bill. But thinking about kind of these three key components, I have a number of concerns that I want to go through. The first is this expansion of the executive, including the addition of a prime minister. It does risk re-centralizing power, power that's really only been devolved since the 2010 constitution. And Kenya has a very long history of a highly centralized executive. A greater concern is that it risks weakening opposition politics, in effect, institutionalizing de facto one-party rule. 
And this is partly because the president is able to choose the prime minister, but it's this broader concern about everyone needing to be part of the government to be anyone. The second concern is the possibility of reifying ethnic identity and ethnic boundaries. And this goes back to this idea of a consociational model of politics. The assumption here is that kind of built into the BBI is this idea that one can only be represented or inclusive representation means having ethnic representation. And kind of along those same lines, it risks institutionalizing ethnic-based patronage politics. A third concern is related to the first is the expansion of the government. Right? So that talks about the addition of 70 constituencies with that, the expansion of the number of seats. And this has a very significant financial burden for Kenya, not to mention the distributive conflict that will undoubtedly arise in terms of which regions or which areas get those additional seats. Item four here is there's a tone in the BBI that wants to shift the blame kind of in terms of thinking about or explaining Kenya's problems. It wants to place the blame on the citizens. And I think this is really problematic. This patronizing tone that ignores much longer standing questions of elite impunity and wants to throw it onto the backs of the citizenry, attributing dysfunction to, for example, lack of education, kind of this tone of cultural backwardness and lack of morals. Thought number five ignores the state's role in orchestrating violence, and it's unclear how BBI is going to be able to restrain or prevent violence moving forward. The sixth issue here is that I think it distracts from the efforts, the country's efforts to more fully implement the 2010 Constitution. The 2010 Constitution, by many accounts, was a very progressive document. And so it's not a matter of kind of proliferating amendments or kind of amending the Constitution, but a more earnest effort in implementing the Constitution that exists. I'll leave it there, Judd, for now. And that's all to say I'm skeptical, uh, though, of course, hopeful. Well, I think your skepticism uh, shines through, Kathleen. You know, it strikes me that some of the ways in which they frame the BBI is about reducing violence, right? Not repeating the violence of 2007, 2008. And you make the point that actually it doesn't do that at all. And I thought I would just get one more insight from you, which is some of the work that you've been doing just recently on the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. You had a great article in the Monkey Cage blog, which we'll put in our show notes. But essentially, it was making some comparisons between what happened here in Washington, D.C., where Danielle and I are, and what has happened in Kenya. And can you maybe share a little bit of those conclusions as well and what it may tell us about political violence in Kenya? Yeah, sure. So in that piece, I was drawing on my research in Kenya to think through the capital attacks on January 6th. And so in doing so, I suggested that we think about the capital attacks as part of a much longer process of political violence, this process that plays out in three main stages or kind of resting on three main conditions. The first was that violence must become thinkable. What are the contexts in which violence becomes a legitimate tool to achieve a certain political goal? And so that really rests on a set of existing narratives, often kind of local narratives or longer standing narratives, and the ability of elites to tap into those narratives or elevate those narratives to create an enemy and to frame violence in this defensive way. So violence then takes on this defensive logic of defending group interests or a sense of entitlement, be it around land in the case of Kenya or protecting white supremacy in the U.S. context. Second, beyond just kind of the thinkability of violence, violence has to be feasible. Potential perpetrators need to be able to coordinate and plan with one another, be it, you know, text messages or social media platforms. 
leaders have to feel like they can organize or enable violence without fear of punishment. So really, this gets to the impunity question and the fact that there's very few mechanisms of holding leaders or perpetrators accountable, both in Kenya and as we've seen in the U.S. context as well. And the third, and I think this is really important, is that restraints on violence must fail. So election violence is really rare. And so kind of this third component is in looking back on violence, what restraints failed in anticipating violence, it's thinking about will those mechanisms of restraint hold? So then thinking about forward to the 22 elections in Kenya, I think that violence has become thinkable and legitimate in certain spaces. We see elites continuing to draw on these longer standing narratives and using dehumanizing language around kind of who has rights to land, who is an insider and outsider. But now even with the BBI, we see similar language, this very clear vilification, kind of the same old format of creating an enemy and then violence becoming thinkable and legitimate because it's about removing them or eliminating them. There's little oversight or accountability mechanisms to prevent violence moving forward. The police is very rarely held accountable for its own brutality and the military is increasingly emboldened under the Uhuru Kenyatta's regime. Kathleen, I want to pick up on this point because both in the U.S. and in the Kenyan context, we're talking about increasingly, like, how do we change the system, right? And it's all about constitutional design. And I think the points that you're making here, both about Kenya, but also about the U.S., are really about the erosion of norms, the creation of new norms, the lack of leadership, or the fact that there is some restraints. And, you know, I think that ultimately, if we're going to have peaceful and prosperous societies here in the U.S. or abroad, it's about creating these guardrails or these restraint mechanisms that you're talking about. I wanted to bring Chapanda in there because one hand, people get really excited about constitutional design. And the other one, I think they see technology as another savior. Well, maybe they don't think of technology as much of a savior anymore, but at least once upon a time they did. And Chapanda, you've written a lot about technology and how it can curb corruption or track incidents of violence. And I just want to get your sense on how it can be a force for good here. But clearly there's some real problems as well. I did write about technology being a force for good a while ago, and I think there was a lot of optimism regarding technology in Africa, especially with Ushahidi back in the day, which was, of course, used in Kenya around the uh, 2008 post-election violence. But I don't know, I'm also rather pessimistic based on what we've seen in recent years. I think the reports all point to the fact that technology is increasingly being used to survey people in countries where leaders, of course, want to hold on to power or curb political opponents or just crack down on, you know, the media as well. So if I look back at myself, of course, years ago, I did think it was a good thing. But obviously, with the spread of Huawei CTE technology in African countries, that's definitely an issue. And of course, increasingly, if you look at examples which have been pointed to in the press as well, Uganda, Kenya, Zambia, even Zimbabwe, you know, all those are countries that might be potentially getting surveillance technology to also be able to spy on their citizens. And what other reason would a government do that apart from watching its opponents, first of all, and then second, that it holds onto power as much as it can. And that's sort of one of the concerns in Zambia. There is a cyber bill going on right now, which is being discussed. And one of the things that people fear is that it will be used by the government to try to sort of curb people criticizing it. And that's one reason. So there's concerns about what can be said on social media as a result of that, if that does go through. So that's definitely one reason why I'm concerned about technology these days. Yeah, but I think it's the same issue around the BBI and constitutional reform. This all gets down to intent. 
right? If you're going to use technology for transparency, groovy. If you're going to create a system that brings more people in, that doesn't do the things that Kathleen laid out, I think that could be positive. But if the intent is to do something different, then you have a, a perfect vehicle, a perfect weapon to do that. I know we'll have another opportunity to talk about this, but I do want to move to our second topic. Chapanda, you've already sort of previewed that we're going to talk a lot about Zambia, where both you and Danielle have expertise. But Zambia has been this country that we had once upheld as a vibrant democracy, had experienced numerous leadership transitions, both incumbent defeats and also leaders passing away in office and then having a very peaceful transition. And now I think it's become a leading example of democratic backsliding. Tanzania tends to get more of the attention, at least in Western media and here in Washington. But I do think Zambia deserves our attention. And uh, this is a great time to talk about what we're seeing happening on the ground with President Lungu going for a third term in August of 2021. We start in Zambia now, where there's been criticism of yesterday's constitutional court ruling that President Edgar Lungu can stand in presidential elections due in 2021. Opposition leader Hakainde Hichilema, who heads the United Party for National Development, says that the ruling effectively opens the way to a third term for President Lungu. So, Chapanda, give us some background. How did we get here? Did I mischaracterize this? Where are we in Zambia's democratic trajectory? What is President Lungu trying to do? If I'm going to be short, I'm going to have to say, first of all, he's trying to stay in power. At least it definitely looks like. He's obviously made attempts to reform the constitution. We can talk about Bill 10, which failed, and that's because he failed to get the two-thirds majority that is needed to reform the constitution, and that was in November of last year. So obviously, this is a man who's determined to stay in power, but he's determined to stay in power at a time when the economy, to put it quite bluntly, is tanking, or has been tanking. He took over as president in 2015, and at the time, the debt-to-GDP ratio was 35%. We're now speaking of a debt to GDP ratio, at least in 2020, of 120%. How did we get there? I don't know. I don't have too many answers, but I can only point to a couple of things. One being that the fans were poorly mismanaged, investment in the wrong infrastructure projects, including airports being refurbished and a new one being built on the Copper Belt, costing hundreds of millions. And of course, there are other projects which have been pointed to where the government is said to have overpaid. Whether it did overpay or those funds were redirected or misdirected, whichever we want to call it, um, we don't know. It's hard to really say, but obviously there's been some allegations of corruption as well. And he's determined to stay in power. And he's done that by trying to get a hold on the central bank. In August last year, he fired the central bank chief as well and replaced him with a political ally. Some experts have said that would be one way that would perhaps allow him to raise much needed money before the elections in August this year, because, of course, he could, using his political ally in the central bank, you know, get him to buy state bonds and that could help raise money. That's one thing. This is intervening in the mining industry, which was largely private. But recently, the government purchased Glencore's operations in Zambia. And then, of course, you know, in 2019, we had the liquidation of, you know, Vedanta mining operations, you know, which is like the biggest mining operation in the country as well. Obviously, he's determined to stay in power and he's trying to get as much power as he can economically and also, of course, constitutionally. 
I mean, this feels like a perfect storm, and I'd love to hear Danielle's thoughts. So you've got Lungu going for a third term. I think Chapanda, you didn't give enough uh, attention to all of the repression in terms of the arrest of exactly Hakai no Hichilema. Sorry, I should have mentioned the human rights. No, no, rights. that's okay. I'm a business reporter, just by the way, so I'm good with the numbers. I can I can point to that, like, all the stuff I've been talking about as well uh, in my reporting. Now, that's my job as host. I'm filling it in, right? So political repression, you did a, a great job talking about the debt, the sort of the growing state role in the mining sector. I would also add that Zambia doesn't have the strongest record in terms of response to COVID-19, particularly allegations of corruption. And then I think, Danielle, you probably have some insight on some of the issues around the fuel subsidies that they're going on. That's always a sign to me of someone trying to shore up public support. But I, I just wanted to get your thoughts on how worried should we be about where Zambia is going? In short, I'm extremely worried. I've worked and lived in Zambia off and on since 2009. And the difference in the political and economic climate is, is quite stark. And I think, you know, back to your first question about how we got here, I really tie it to the death of Michael Sata. Back in 2014, he had been the leader of the Patriotic Front, the current ruling party. And um, his hold over the party meant there was an extreme intra-party struggle in the wake of his death. And you saw the party fragment excessively. You saw Lungu losing a lot of legitimacy within the party. And then you have this opposition, the UPND, led by Haikunda Hichalema, who came increasingly very close to defeating the PF in the 2016 presidential election. So I think Lungu feels there's threats within and outside the party that have increased this repression that we've seen as Japan alluded to, you know, the cybersecurity and cybercrimes draft bill. They recently closed uh, Prime TV, one of the other independent media outlets. The employment of the Public Order Act, which has been in existence for a long time, but has actively been enforced under the PF, which limits the capacity of different groups to have meetings and has been targeted, particularly at the opposition, to hold meetings. In addition, there's been the rerunning of the voters' role by the Electoral Commission of Zambia just at the end of last year, and that's been seen as widely biased against opposition regions. You actually have fewer voters have been registered in regions that tend to vote for the opposition. In addition, Chapanda outlined very nicely you know, the economic issues going on. The currency has lost 100% of its value against the dollar in the last five years, and it Zambia, you know, notoriously became the first COVID-19 era sovereign debt default country when it defaulted on its 42 million in euro bonds. We have been in this situation before in the early 2000s when Zambia's debt became increasingly unsustainable and the country got hippic debt forgiveness. This ushered in a decade of more sustainable macroeconomic growth. We had also witnessed at that time civil society pushing back against the then-president Frederick Chaluba's efforts to run for a third term. At that time, civil society got a lot of support from the donor community, and Chaluba ultimately conceded and left after his second term. But I really feel the circumstances are quite different now. As we've been saying, civil society is quite vocal. Also importantly, many donors, traditional OECD donors, have exited the country due to a series of corruption scandals, including in the health sector, or they've frozen aid for the time being. And so we have increasing reliance on Chinese money, as well as Israel and Russia. And so by implication, many observers feel that this will be, there'll be less external support for a return to democracy. So yeah, in some very worrying, five years ago, I wrote a piece for the 2016 election saying I saw kind of Zambia 
being on a precipice. And unfortunately, now I see that the precipice is even higher and we're much closer to jumping off. You know, this is a podcast that is often listened to by U.S. policymakers. And so I think this is an important year, an important test for the Biden administration. Before we get to the August election in Zambia, we have, I think, what will almost certainly be elections that aren't credible in Benin, that won't be credible in Chad, and then we'll get to Zambia. And I think we have Congo Brazzaville somewhere in the middle. So I thought, Chapanda, just really quickly, what should Friends of Zambia be doing here? Do you have any recommendations? Where should the Biden administration or SADC or the AU, what is the way in which we can arrest the slide? Well, it would be nice to see more criticism. We haven't seen it coming from countries like South Africa with the firing of the central bank chief. The South African finance minister did condemn that, but he was reprimanded by the South African president, Cyril Ramaphosa. So I don't see it coming from an African country, or at least one of the bigger African countries. It would be nice to see the United States take a tougher stance. I don't know if that's really feasible, considering all the challenges the Biden administration faces at this point. I think a lot of Europe is also inward looking at this point. I live in Berlin, obviously. I see that. So I don't see much from the international community in terms of condemnation of what's going on in Zambia. We haven't seen that in recent years either. I mean, the condemnation has been more on the economic stuff I mentioned than rather than the human rights situation and the freedom of the press in terms of at least international media coverage. Well, I'm going to be hopeful that there will be more criticism. We've seen it on Ethiopia. We're seeing it on Uganda. I just recently wrote a piece about President Biden's summit for democracy. And I think Zambian civil society should be represented in that conversation as a way to shore them up, as Danielle said. And we'll continue to work and talk about Zambia at CSIS. But let's move to our final section, which is about populism in Africa. I think too often this is seen as a European or U.S. or Latin America issue, and that's clearly wrong. So I'm going to ask Danielle to talk about how she sees populism. But Kathleen, you assigned this to your class. Why did you think they need to understand this phenomenon in sub-Saharan Africa? Prior to this class, we've been looking at other models of governance or theories of governance in Africa, reviewing common concepts like big man rule and patronage politics and corruption. But much of this scholarship on African politics, I think, risks pathologizing African models of governance, that the problems of Africa are somehow inherent to styles of politics that are unique to the continent. And so what I like about using the lens of populism is it really helps us pull the continent into a more comparative perspective. It's a term that has resonance in Latin America, in Eastern Europe, in Europe, and, and of course, in the U.S. in particular, which has become particularly salient in the last four or five years. So I think it's a concept that a lot of students now can grasp in a way perhaps that they couldn't grasp even pre-Trump. And I think it's a really useful framework for thinking about questions of politics that we've used, but in different terms, like ethnic politics, right? So maybe populism is a way to sharpen that same conversation and to have a more kind of comparable and generalizable framework for thinking about dynamics in the continent. Danielle, you wrote an article in the Oxford uh, Handbook of Populism. I think it's a masterclass in really breaking all of this down. I, if you could see my, my notes, it's all highlighted. So I'd love you to kind of share with us how you've thought about populism in, you know, historically and then how it manifests itself in different ways and, and maybe how you're just thinking about it more broadly across the continent now. Thanks, Jed. It's kind to hear that others are reading the chapter. It's always nice to hear. 
And yeah, I think, again, you know, a lot of my original thinking on populism, again, grew out of the Zambian experience and particularly Michael Sata and what the Patriotic Front were doing. They were getting a lot of support in urban areas. And looking at his campaign style, exactly as Kathleen says, I was thinking of parallels with other regions and very much seeing what he was doing being typical of Latin American populists, such as Hugo Chavez or Eva Morales. And essentially finding there's a lot of demand side drivers um, for populist leaders in developing countries, particularly driven by various demographic and socioeconomic trends, including rapid urbanization, growing youth bulge, rising unemployment. And these definitely create the necessary grievances that savvy politicians can seize upon when a window of opportunity emerges in the political sphere. And then I talk about on the kind of supply side, when these opportunities appear has typically been when either there has been some major shift in the party system, party fractionalization, when citizens' partisan affinities are disrupted, or as a result of kind of continued dominance of a hegemonic, though democratically elected party, such as the ANC. And so in the chapter you're alluding to, I basically see populism as meeting a number of criteria uh, in the African context, particularly four criteria. So I've argued first that populist strategies, um, like elsewhere in Africa, have depended on not just charismatic leaders, but charismatic leaders who attempt to create unmediated direct ties. And then secondly, we see these direct ties being facilitated by these charismatic leaders by using what Pierre Ostegay calls sociocultural performances. So these are very much theatrical antics. They can be kind of the use of the vernacular instead of using colonial languages to campaign, using uh, special proverbs that have high appeal, and really employing a discourse about, you know, being a man of the people. And then thirdly, it has this kind of us versus them dynamic. So really about the people versus the corrupt establishment or the corrupt elite. And then the final dimension has been the promotion of an economically eclectic platform that's very much had a programmatic message consistently centering on the needs of the urban poor, particularly job creation and services. And so by looking at those kind of four dimensions collectively, I've identified, you know, a subset of cases where we see all of those dimensions have manifested, not just with regards to Michael Sata in Zambia. I've also considered Rilo Odinga in Kenya at certain times using this populist strategy. Certainly we see today uh, Julius Malema of the Economic Freedom Front in South Africa is probably uh, the populist par excellence. So I do want to emphasize again, you know, as Kathleen was saying, that the comparative dimension is that there are some important differences between populism in Africa and Latin America vis-a-vis -vis our European and North American variants, because the latter have very much tended to rely on emphasizing nativism and protecting the status quo. And the former have been more explicitly about shifting the status quo to benefit an eclectic group of the poor masses. But ultimately, there are some key similarities across these regions, and that is the populist dilemma, which is that while these populist strategies are excellent for differentiation and opposition, if you actually come to govern, governance requires consensus and minimizing differences. And especially because we find these populists portraying themselves as both above a party and with the people, because they rely on these unmediated ties to the people, this really leads to them being easily able to rationalize eroding democratic institutions and civil liberties that inhibit personal or policy agendas. 
in addition to Malema in South Africa, the Zambian cases and Odinga, I mean, I clearly, I think John Magafuli in Tanzania would hit some of these categories. Uh, I would say in Cote d'Ivoire, under Bedier, introducing Ivorite, sort of a more narrow definition of who's Ivorian, and maybe even President Buhari with his own economic nationalism. So we have a number of variants across the continent. But Japanda, Danielle talks about Zambia several times. She's inspired by Zambia for this chapter. And she talks about Sata a lot. Actually, you mentioned Kaunda as well, the first president, Danielle. But I just wanted to get from your sense, Japanda, does Lungu fit this category? And maybe just a little bit of how you see this or feel this on the ground or when you're reporting on uh, Zambia. As you know, I grew up in Zambia and I was born in the U.S., but I grew up during the Kaunda times and I lived through the Chaluba times. I didn't live in the country after that. But I do know Michael Sata as a politician. I was well aware of him when I was a young child and in my teens. And I think the difference there I'd like to point out is that Michael Sata was someone who even people who didn't like him would listen to what he had to say and they would laugh about it if they didn't agree with it, obviously. But they would listen. And that's that's a huge difference. I mean, he just had a way with words which you cannot compare to any other politician I can think of from Zambia. Kaunda had his own charm in his own ways. He was problematic, but he also had his own charm and charisma. I think Lungu doesn't really have much charisma, in my opinion. I should really preface that as, as my opinion. And I think this is why we see him really turning to trying to change the constitution and turning to using other tools to sort of assert his power, because he can't do that through his rhetoric. So I think he's turning to different tools, the economic tools he's using. It's the sort of cracking down the media, cracking down on opposition, which of course Kalanda did do as well. But I think his reasons maybe for doing it were slightly different and it wasn't a democracy as it's supposed to be today. So I think our understanding of the politics of those days was slightly different. Edgar Lungu is probably the first president who may have thrown an opposition leader of that standing into prison since Chaluba took over. And as far as I can remember, no major political leader has been thrown into jail. We are living in a different political system, and yet he's using tools that would have been used in a one-party democracy, as it was called then. So I think he's someone who's really desperate to assert his power, and that's a huge difference. Absolutely. All right. This is the final question. Kathleen, since you said, you know, populism allows you to be comparativist. I was curious from all of you, any mutual learning that you're seeing between the African variant of populism and what's happening in other parts of the world? You know, are we seeing mirroring both from the African side or from the non-African side? And maybe you have some predictions of where this could go. You could answer one or the other or both if you're ambitious. Kathleen, why don't you go first? I'd say the main kind of common thread, and perhaps Danielle might can kind of challenge this, is is this rising appeal of nativism as a way to divide? And I, I do think that kind of historically it wasn't that framework wasn't being used as much on the continent, but that's kind of one strong parallel. And maybe that's being, you know, that's coming from in part the migrant crisis, pushing kind of nativism as being a particularly kind of salient theme for populist politics in Europe and in the US. But then equally thinking about South Africa in particular, and nativism being not just kind of this xenophobic backlash, but also this use of nativist appeals even to distinguish between different ethnic groups. So maybe I'm kind of using it in a broader context, but even here thinking about Cote d'Ivoire and the way it plays out in Kenya. And so that's, I'd, I'd say that's a thread that I, I see throughout. I think that's absolutely right. Chapanda. 
I think I'll agree with Kathleen. Uh, definitely doesn't ask in them, but of course in Africa it plays out slightly differently. Um, you're thinking of foreigners coming to make the most of the natural resources. So of course, Michael Sato did target China. And of course, um, you see some of that in Edgar Lungu's speeches. And of course, him sort of trying to revoke a miner's, like a foreign investor's mining license. That could be an example of something like that as well. Um, so there's definitely that going on as well. But of course, the dynamics are slightly different in African countries. Okay, Danielle, it was your chapter. You you need to end the, uh, this episode with your insights. No pressure. <laughs> yeah, no pressure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think first there is some some mutual learning, perhaps in a in a negative sense. I mean, I think you know, um, you know, John Mangafuli in, in Tanzania looking at populists like Bolsonaro and, and Trump, and you know, seeing that. They've gotten away with quite a bit in terms of rule of law and civil liberties and, you know, seeing that 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 may be acceptable if we have leaders elsewhere outside the continent doing this. I think Kathleen's also right that, you know, we are seeing more cases of what's called exclusionary populism, which is what you do tend to see more in North America or Europe. And Malema is a very good case where he does um, draw on on racial issues to make his point. And then the us versus them is is racial. There is also an ethnic dimension as well, but uh, he gets a lot of support uh, on the racial side. I think ultimately, though, where is this going is hard to say because typically populism is very difficult to sustain once it comes in office. Um, it either kind of transcends itself and becomes more, you know, normal rule. And this is what we saw with Jerry Rawlings back in Ghana, uh, which started out as a populist and then adopted IMF austerity and ultimately allowed multi-party competition. Or it can go the other way, which is what we've been talking about today. It can go the authoritarian direction. But it's very hard to stay a, a populist in office without kind of going one, one direction or the other. Great. Well, let me thank Kathleen, Danielle, and Japanda, and let me thank the students at the University of San Francisco, and we'll see everyone in two weeks. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks.